All right, this morning we're going to talk about inner strength, mostly because I like to choose things I know nothing about. That way somebody will learn something (laughs) while I'm talking. And before we do that, I want to go through this little ritual of going back to what's important and to to setting our space uh, together so that we can really open up to the truth and and understanding of these things. And to do that, uh, in in my studies anyway over the years, actually ever since I was a little kid, I've kind of come up with three things that seem to be very important. And the first one is from from Takor, everybody knows, uh, is for a to have sincerity and earnestness in our lives, that in our spiritual life, that is the most important quality to have. Uh, you know, I say this every time, and there's a reason for that, you know, to bring that authenticity and that realness to our relationship with the divine and to what we're trying to accomplish, what we're trying to find in ourselves here. And without that, uh, really, there's nowhere to go until you get that. And once you have that, there's no other worries because Takur says that if you have that sincerity and that earnestness of heart, that God himself will take care of your spiritual endeavor and that uh, if you're going a wrong way, he'll provide you the means to get steered in the right direction. So this morning for that commitment to be ours, to be sincere, to be earnest in our quest. And the second one is very much like it. I go all the way back to my boyhood with Jesus and uh, that, that when he was asked by the Pharisees and the scribes, they were trying to trap him, actually, into, into saying something wrong. And so they wanted him to tell them, what's the most important commandment? What's the most important thing to know? And uh, Jesus answered, to love God as you lo- uh, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love each other as you love yourself. And uh, Vedanta taught me that that's one and the same thing and brought those two together. And uh, so for our commitment this morning to love, to make sure that it's an atmosphere of love and a, and a commitment to love uh, for each other, for the divine, uh, and for our endeavor even, for, for going forward. And then the final, I come back to, uh, to Takur again. When he was sitting on the Ganges and he was doing a spiritual practice of uh, trying to, to find that unity of all things, and he was throwing away the pairs of opposites. You know, he was saying... You know, here, mother, take your, take your, you know, beauty and your ugliness, take them both and just give me pure love for you. And he was just going through the pairs of opposites, you know, just throwing them both away. And he came to truth and he said, here's your truth, here's your untruth. And he realized that mother just wouldn't let him finish that sentence, that truth is a fundamental necessity in spiritual life and that you can't do without it. And uh, it's an internal truth and an external truth, you know, to be truthful in our words. Takor says that that's the biggest practice of this age, is truthfulness, you know, just being truthful. And truthfulness implies, you know, kind of three tiers, your mind, your word, and your deed, the three of them being in alignment. That's what's being referred to when you talk about truth, that you're the same person inside, on the way outside, and outside, (laughs) that all three of those are in alignment. So my commitment this morning with you and your commitment to each other, I hope, and uh, together before Takor, before God, is for those three things as we go forward. And with that, I want to launch into my favorite poet, Hafiz. He says in a, title, in a poem titled, In a Handful of God, 
Poetry reveals that there is no empty space. When your truth forsakes its shyness, when your fears surrender to your strengths, you will begin to experience that all existence is a teeming sea of infinite life. In a handful of ocean water, you could not count all of the finely tuned musicians who were acting stoned for very intelligent and sane reasons, and of course are becoming extremely sweet and wild. In a handful of the sky and earth, in a handful of God, we cannot count all the ecstatic lovers who are dancing there behind that mysterious veil. True art reveals there is no void or darkness. There is no loneliness to the clear-eyed mystic in this luminous, brimming, and playful world. <laughs> My volume of Hafiz has magically become a two-volume set. <laughs> so inner strength, it's necessary to attain that vision, to have that understanding, to go where we want to go. You know, where we can uh, be stoned for very intelligent, intelligent and sane reasons. You know, to, in, the, in one of Hafiz's other poems, he talks about going to the tavern, you know, God's tavern at the corner and drinking, imbibing deeply of uh, divine inebriation, you know, from that, from that wine that has no end. And uh, to get there, to get to that place, you know, where that can be enjoyed, where, where, where the divine can be experienced like that in each other and in the mundane of washing dishes, or scrubbing floors, or God forbid, cleaning toilets, <laughs> that you can experience that divinity, uh, the, that infinite number of well-tuned musicians singing that beautiful song. But we're standing, most of us, many of us, I know me, are standing at the foot of Mount Everest, you know, when it comes to spiritual life, and just looking at this giant task that has to be accomplished. And, uh, you know, every time these, these things come up, any time you talk about spiritual life, we like the first thing I hear out of myself and then out of people around, oh, it's so hard. Oh, how can we possibly ever do such a thing? Oh, my God. How? You know, and you sit there, you're looking at the mountain. How are you going to climb to the top of that thing? When you're at the bottom of Everest and you're looking at the top up in the clouds, you're thinking, uh, uh-uh, I'm going home. Not going to do this. So, how can we do that? You know, what do we have to do? It's like you could do that. You could say, ah, this is too hard. Not for me. I'm going home. <laughs> I like the mountain, beautiful, leave it at that, and not climb. And that's an option. That's even an option in spiritual life. You're welcome to stay at any level that you're happy. You know, if you are happy and comfortable where you're at, God invites you to stay there. You know, enjoy that bliss in that place. But know that there's so much more, and when you get tired of that place, when you're ready to move on, move on, move on. But know that if you're happy here, you're, you're, you're missing the real party. <laughs> the neighbors are having a better one upstairs, and you're still invited, you know, but just come on up at some point. You know, we sit there and we think about all the possibilities of what we can't do. You know, oh, I might fall. Oh, it's going to be so cold. Uh, it's such a long distance. You know, and we kind of build these reasons on why this thing can't be accomplished or why it shouldn't be done. Because we're at the beginning and it looks awesome. It looks overwhelmingly huge. But there's a thing that I learned in corporate America before I became a monk, if there's anything to be learned in corporate America. It, uh, and it was this idea of being solution-oriented. We had one of those horrible conferences, you know, where they had brought in outside consultants to booze Alan Hamilton. I, would, I shouldn't have said a name. Anyway, <laughs> they came in, and they were going to teach us how to do our jobs in a better way. 
having never done them themselves. <laughs> but one of the things that they did say that was pretty cool and stuck with me was this idea of being solution-oriented. You know, don't see problems and stop there. Don't be the guy that's walking around all the time finding problems with the way everybody else is doing something, finding holes in the plan. That's not the way to be. Be the guy that's running around and sees those, but then is offering solutions all the time, looking for ways to get out. And so in that, you know, you look at the mountain as you're about to start, and you think, oh, my God, I might fall down. So you better bring a pair of boots, you know. You think, oh, my God, I'm going to be cold. Well, that's why I'm going to bring a really good jacket, you know. Oh, it's so far to walk. Well, I'll bring a tent and a sleeping bag for some rest. It's that idea, you know, not to be daunted. Don't be undone by the, si- the size of the task in front of us in this, in this quest for spiritual life. We read about these saints and their absolute purity and their ap- absolute discipline and the unbelievable things that they do in their love for God. And uh, we think, ah, oh, <laughs> I can't even get up in the morning. How am I going to possibly do that? Get an alarm clock. You know, always be thinking of, <laughs> be thinking of the positive. So all of that was just to start. That, we haven't gotten into the lecture yet. That was just kind of framing the, the situation that we're in. We have to remember two things, and these, these are the fundamental two things for, for the task ahead. One, your spiritual enlightenment was intended to be accomplished. It was God's intention and is God's intention for you to accomplish that. And the second thing about that is you can do it. You know you can do it because if you read the gospel, he tells you all of us are going home. Everybody. Some are going to get there early in the morning and be able to enjoy breakfast. Some are going to have to wait till lunch. Some are going to be at their dinner. You know, some are going to be with me as we (laughs) toggle in as they're locking the outer gates. But we're going to make it. We're going to be home. And so to have those two assumptions in your spiritual life. One, it's intended to be done. When you read those impossible things in the scripture, no, they're intended to be done. They're intended for you to accomplish them. And second of all, you can do it. Now I'm going to put some scripture behind this because who am I to say those two things? I'm going to go to Karma Yoga with our, our friend Swami Vivekananda there. He says, our first duty, okay, so this is why it's the first point. Vivekananda says, our first duty is not to hate ourselves. Because to advance, we must have faith in ourselves first and then in God. He who has no faith in himself can never have faith in God. He says, as for himself, Swami Vivekananda was constantly talking to people, instructing them in the Upanishads and enjoining them to cultivate the inner strength that comes from the knowledge of God residing in all human hearts. Okay, those are our two fundamental assumptions as we start here. Number one, you can do it. Don't hate yourself. Don't come up with reasons why you failed. You know, uh, I always go back to that scripture in the Corinthians, and there's a reason for that because I haven't perfected it yet, where we know that one of the qualities of divine love, of of love itself, is that it keeps no record of wrongs. And so in your life, you should not come up with your past failures as being reasons on why you're not going to be able to do it this time. You know, one of the most, one of my most favorite passages, and this is probably way too insightful into my own character, is when M and, and Vivekananda were talking after uh, uh, Sri Ramakrishna had passed away, and uh, Vivekananda was saying, "I want to make a take a vow to fast unto death, uh, you know, un, un, uh, until I have that realization." 
And uh, M says, well, why don't you do it? And Vivekananda says, I'm afraid that I won't be able to keep the vow. And M says to him, so eat and start again. <laughs> I was like, I can, I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. And my spiritual life is built on that foundation principle there. It's like, I was told actually by the person who introduced me to Vedanta, who actually showed me the scriptures of Vedanta uh, in a conversation one time, uh, said to me, he says, the only difference between a spiritual man and a worldly man is that when a, when a spiritual man falls off the horse, he'll get back on, no matter how many times. The worldly man will just walk away and be content to not get back on the horse. And so that's, that's part of that, that process of just being stubborn, being stubborn about this and going forward. We have to take what is our birthright, this promise for success, right? This promise that we can do it. We have to insist on that. When you talk to Takor, it's good to be very, you know, all those things, you know, get down on the floor and be subservient and humble and all those are very nice. But when it comes to the promises he makes to us, promises that God makes, you can pin him to the wall. <laughs> you can pin him to the wall. You can say, hey, 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 you promised that I was going to be able to do this. And look, I've messed up 95 times this week. Hello, where are you? You promised me, you know, because hold, hold it to him. I mean, if you're going to depend on him, if he's going to ask for surrender, if he's going to ask for you to, 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 to beg him for this help, then you have to hold him to that promise. You have to live like you are depending on him. And, and, and he is responsible for that and has taken that responsibility and has accepted that responsibility to take you forward, to be there and to be your refuge when you're not making it. You know, when you're falling down, when you're not moving ahead, when you're just inundated by the world and by all of the things of it. You know, his promise, his commitment, his, his absolute existence is there for you. And he's waiting for you to turn there. I have proof about this. I have proof about this. Down here, there's a, there's a, a great story. I'm skipping all over the place now, so here we go. About a king named King Jayamal. We're just going to call him King Jay in the, in the uh, traditions of our center here. There was a King Jay who loved Krishna with all his heart, and he followed him with unfailing devotional, with unfailing devotion, all the rites and ceremonies associated with the adoration of Krishna. And one of his inflexible rules of devotion was to worship the deity daily until almost midday. Okay? He would never deviate from this practice, even at the risk of his wealth or his kingdom. And learning this secret, an enemy invaded the kingdom during the morning hours when he was in the shrine. Good planning. Well, King Jay's soldiers could not fight without his command, so they watched the invasion silently, watched it happen. And slowly the enemy surrounded the moat of the capital, and yet Jayamal did not come out of his shrine room. His mother came to him and wept bitterly. Okay, your mom. <laughs> your mom's coming to your shrine room is weeping bitterly. Okay, it's a little bit of a distraction there. She comes in there, and he says to her calmly, why are you worried? <laughs> I love that. Why are you worried? Well, there's a few reasons. Krishna gave me this kingdom. What can I do if he has decided to take it away? On the other hand, none will be able to do me harm if he protects me. Our own efforts are in vain. And in the meantime, Krishna himself had taken the king's horse from the stable, had ridden fully armed into the field. Alone he faced the hostile king, and alone he destroyed that army. Having crushed the enemy forces, the deity returned to the temple and fastened his horse nearby. Okay, well, the cool thing is King Jay comes out of the 
shrine and he comes out and he finds his horse all dirty and sweating and panting and he's like, who took my horse? <laughs> who took the horse? And everybody's shrugging their shoulders and he goes out the gates on the horse and he finds, he finds no one alive except for the opposing king. And the opposing king comes over and falls down on his face and says, you know, who was that blue warrior? You know, he called him. Who was that blue warrior? Jayamal then realized it had been none other than Krishna that had appeared on this battlefield. The enemy king understood too. He worshipped Jayamal and, and through his blessing received Krishna's grace. So there's so many things in, in this. One, just this absolute faith. The king was holding it to the Lord. You know, he was, he was living on one of these assumptions that God means what he says. That God says, I'm going to take care of you. He means I'm going to take care of you. When God says, I provide for you, that means God is going to provide for me. When God says, you're going to win this, I'm going to win this. When God says, you're going to realize me, you're going to realize me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to hold my beloved to his promises because that relationship exists and it's not a pretend thing that's floating somewhere in the back of my mind. It's the very basis for my assumptions about living. It's one of my fundamental approaches to life, you know, that God intended me to do this and I can do it. You know, this morning when we came in and we sat down in our chair, you know, I didn't see anybody kind of testing it making sure, you know, this is going to hold me up. Pretty much everybody, I'd say without fail, came in and just sat down in that chair. In our spiritual life, these fundamental principles of love, these fundamental principles of God that, that, that he's made these promises, they're like that. These are assumptions that you don't need to test and wonder about. You can just sit down. You can just know. God is love. I am going to do this. It was intended for me to do this, and I'm going to accomplish this. It's very fundamental to my life. The thing, the, the cloak that we're just going to surround all of that in is love. You know, I, 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 I sometimes, uh, people mention that I keep giving the same lecture and over and over again, and I was hoping that I'd be much older before people realize that. But, uh, you know, this ideal of love is the greatest, is the greatest that we can build a life on. And certainly it's one that, that, that we need to realize. You know, we just keep talking about it. Hafiz writes another poem. He says, the subject tonight is love. And he says, as a matter of fact, the subject for tomorrow night will be love also. And the night after that, as a matter of fact, I can't think of anything else to speak of for the rest of our days together. This ideal. Swamiji says, our ideal becomes one of perfect love. One of perfect fearlessness of love. The highest ideal of such a person has no narrowness of particularity about it. It is love universal, love without limit, love without bonds. It is love itself, absolute love. This is our ideal. This is where our two basic assumptions that we have, I, that, that this is intended for me and I can do it, are couched in this ideal of love. It's because God is love. Because our nature is love, our nature is divine, it's because of that that we can sit in that chair without having to test it every single time, where we can be fearless. He says, he says here, interesting, that second, that second notion of perfect love is perfect fearlessness of love. You know? That perfect fearlessness, that unity, that sense that we've often talked about together, 
You know, if you are assuming that it is pure love that is in the heart of every single person around you that you meet every day, if you assume that their life is a manifestation of love, what is there to fear in them? Where is shyness in that? You know, where is fear? Where is timidity in that? It's nowhere. It's nowhere. You can love freely without the fear of being hurt. Why? Because it's your nature to love and your nature to give. That is the source of your inner strength. That's the source of your inner assumptions about life. You know, that these things were intended to be accomplished and they will be accomplished because our ideal is that of perfect love, unfailing, no narrowness, no bigotry, no fear, universal, without limit, love itself. Yes, absolute love. The lover has passed beyond all these things, beyond reward and punishment, beyond fear and doubt, beyond scientific or any other demonstration. Sufficient unto him is the ideal of love. And it is, not self, is it not self-evident that this universe is but a manifestation of this love? And this is Swamiji. This is cool. <laughs> this really shows what it's like to see this, to see this ideal. He's looking, he's going to go right into science here. Is it not self-evident that this universe is a, but just a manifestation of this love? What is it that makes atoms unite with atoms, molecules with molecules? What causes planets to fly toward each other? What is it that attracts man to man, woman to woman, woman to man, and animals to animals, drawing the whole universe, as it were, toward one center? It is what is called love. Its manifestation is from the lowest atom to the highest being, omnipotent, all-pervading, is this love. What manifests itself as attraction in the sentient and the insentient, in the particular and in the universal, is the love of God. It is the one mode of power that is in the universe. Under the impetus of that love, Christ gives his life for humanity, Buddha even for an animal, the mother for her child, the husband for his wife. It is under the impetus of that one same love that men are ready to give up their lives for their country. This one centralized focusing power of love. It's the only motive power in the world. He goes on in the rest of that paragraph. I never put it in my notes because I never want to talk about it, but anytime you get into this, you have to. He says it's the only motivating power in the universe. There is nothing that is done in this world that is not motivated by love. <laughs> you don't have to think more than like 33 seconds if you're slow to come up with some big questions about that, you know, some thing, pretty heinous things that are carried on in this world. But, you know, I'll leave the exercise to you because I'm, I'm not going to make put myself in a position of standing up and saying that the world's heinous crimes are, uh, in fact, done by love because I haven't had that realization. But the scripture says it. And when I've thought about it, you can sit there and you can find a position, you know, you take this, you take this, uh, this the whole thing going on in the Middle East with this ISIS and the oh my God, the things that have happened in the name of God, you know, to, to individuals. You're like, where, where's the love in that? Well, if you can let go of, of the obvious biases and stand in the position of someone who really believes that they're doing the right thing, there's a lot of love there. The love in that fundamentalism, as, as narrow and as tweaked as it is by that idea of being a body, of being small, as much as that love is being very 
you know, refracted in a very odd way. It is, in fact, someone's love of an ideal that's doing those horrible things, you know. Even, even in, 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 in uh, he, he uses the idea of, of someone committing a murder, you know, it's, it can be love of power, it can be, you know, love of pleasure, it can be, you know, they may be doing it for their family, they need the money for their family, so they're robbing your house. <laughs> Where's the love in somebody robbing my house? It's perhaps their love for their family, perhaps they're getting food, you know, that ideal. But it's a great exercise, especially for spiritual seekers, because he says, he says, remember the second thing was with that fearlessness of love. To be fearless in, in looking at these things and, and even these audacious statements, you know, that this love is the only motivating power in the world, that anything ever done was only done for love. It's part of being realized to know instantly where that, where that perspective is coming from. You know, that's one of the things about being an enlightened soul that's, that's, that's how all of us can dance with Krishna and feel like we're the favorite gopi. You know, that, I love that story. There's, there's a story, I don't even remember where I read it. I should, but I don't. Where they're dancing around the fire. You know, Krishna's playing his flute and they've got a fire going and all the gopi girls are dancing around. And one of the things the writer said was that every gopi dancing around that fire felt like they were Krishna's favorite. <laughs> I love that because I think that is so cool that infinite love means exactly that. All of us like to think we've got a little inside track with God. I mean, that's just part of it, right? It's like, we're tight, you know, God and I. <laughs> yeah, I've got my problems, but you know, when it comes down to it, I'm a pretty all right person. You know, it's like we've got that idea. And you know what? That's cool. That's awesome because it's true. And because it's true for you does not mean it's untrue for the person next to you because we're talking about an infinite source of love. We're talking about an infinite source of love. That every, there's enough of that for everybody to be the favorite, to be the favorite child. So start seeing yourself that way. That was, that was Vivekananda's first point. You know, you're not allowed to hate yourself. <laughs> you're not allowed to be down on yourself. You're not allowed to see yourself as a failure. You're not allowed to, to disqualify yourself because of your past lack of success or your bad habits or whatever it is. You know, this infinite love is enough for you. <laughs> it's going to get you through there. It's going to be all right. So have that confidence. Know that it's okay. And in this confidence, be unflinching, like the king, you know, sitting in his, doing his devotions. Live your life with that kind of fearlessness. The, the army's circling the castle. <laughs> They're lining up around the moat. Mom is on the floor wailing in tears, begging you to come out and do something. You know, and you're just, you know, it seems perfectly reasonable how just this one time cut it short. You come out here and save us, for crying out loud. And he's like, what's the problem? <laughs> what's the problem? Have that kind of attitude about life, you know. The whole world is literally crumbling around you and people are like begging, oh my God, save, do something. And you come out of the shrine, what, what's wrong? <laughs> what's the problem? God is everywhere and always present. God is perfect and all. Let's go. God is everywhere present and always perfect. That idea to see the world in in that perspective and that understanding, that insistence on it, and be unflinching in the things that are feeding that in you. Be unflinching in your devotions to the divine. Be unflinching in your practices. Unmoving in those things that that are providing you with your conduit of understanding. 
don't give them up lightly. Don't give them up lightly. You know, I've said this a million times. Many people are way beyond this, but uh, I have to talk about where, where I'm from. When I started doing my spiritual life, I made a commitment that twice a day I would sit down at my shrine, which I had made up at the time. There were no deities on it or anything. I just made a funky little shrine out of some uh, brush, actually, that I found on the beach. But anyway, so there's a shrine, and I sat down there twice a day, and I knew that, that I was pretty much a flunky when it came to this kind of thing. And so I gave my I two minutes twice a day. That was, my, that was my big commitment to my spiritual life, was two minutes twice a day. I would sit down, and, and I had made up my own, I, my own mantra because I wanted nothing to do with organized religion. I had been beat up by that enough as a kid. I wanted something completely new and fresh and all my own. So I found when I'd go on a walk, I'd find these funky little things on the way. I found a little purple hippo <laughs> one day. I brought that home, and I put a little purple hippo on my shrine. You know, and I would sit there, and I would just think about love because... That's the natural thing to do when you approach the divine, even without a Bible or a scripture or a temple or an organized religion or a priest. The obvious thing to do is to approach love. It's obviously what everybody's worshiping. It's obvious what everybody's singing about, writing about, dancing about is this ideal that we want. So to do that, to have this fun, two minutes might be ridiculous, but it's enough of a crack in the door that God will conquer every one of your fears and every one of your shortcomings through that little crack in that door two minutes is enough you know two minutes is enough don't let what happened to me here be discouraging to you (laughs) do do that two minutes do that two minutes and do it unflinchingly don't let go it's the source of your inner strength it's the source of your ability to be inspired to, to your ability to weep when you hear of love to dance when you hear it in the song. And to know it's your ability to interpret every song that no matter how weird it is, no matter what they're singing about or how explicit they are, your mind will be able to see the love of God that's being looked for in that song. Your eyes, your ears will be able to see the heart of the singer, that they may have confused this love with a billion other things, but your ears will hear that call for the divine and be inspired by it. We'll see that love in there. On this insistence, there's another great story. This one is with Lakshmi and Narayana. Once Lakshmi and Narayana were seated in Vaikuntha, you know, this pretty cool place to be, heaven. And when Narayana suddenly stood up, Lakshmi had been stroking his feet, and she said, Lord, where are you going? Okay, so he's sitting there having a lovely time together. You know, she's sitting there chilling out, and she's stroking his feet, and suddenly jumps up, where are you going? And Narayana answered, one of my devotees is in great danger. I must save him. And with these words, he runs out, leaves poor Lakshmi sitting there on the floor. But he came back immediately. And Lakshmi says, Lord, why have you, re- why have you come back so soon? Narayana smiles and said, well, the devotee was going, going along the road, overwhelmed with love for me, and some washermen were drying some of their clothes on the grass, and the devotee inadvertently walked over all of these clothes And at that, the washermen were chasing him and were going to beat him with their sticks. So I ran out to protect him. Yeah, but why why have you come back so soon? Asked Lakshmi. Narayana laughs and says, I saw the devotee himself picking up a brick to throw at them. So I came back. (laughs) That's the kind of of thing not to do. (laughs) 
to have that, you know, to, to be in danger and to not pick up your own brick and, and turn around to lob it at your attacker, uh, that's some pretty pretty high high ideals. You know, those are that's that's getting pretty close to that edge of fearlessness there. You know, but this is from the scripture. This is from God Himself, and this is this is the lessons of thousands of years of spiritual practice and insight and wisdom, saying God will do it. The divine, the divine does express and is, is something that you can stand on, that you can know fundamentally in your life. So how do we take this into very practical things? I always like to take these things inside the head because that's really where our spiritual life is happening. You know, that's, that's where our ideas about the outside world are happening. So how can we apply this idea of assumption inside? You know? And part of it is this. <laughs> When you know the right thing to do, which you, you almost always do, you know what you should do, and when the alternative is being poised and offered to you, a lot of us go into a battle, right? And we think that that battle is kind of the righteous thing, you know? It's like, oh, it's a righteous battle. And we sit there and we argue and argue and argue. But you know, according to this approach here, you've already lost that battle because you've let it be a battle. You're testing the chair. You know, you're making sure it's strong enough to hold you up. In this kind of living, in this kind of spiritual practice, you don't enter into battle. You sit in the shrine room of the heart, and you just know, that's not the right thing for me to do. It's not a question. I'm not arguing about it. I'm not going to pick up my own stone and start throwing things at it to protect myself. You know, I'm not going to come up with the arguments on why I should you know, stay strong and all those little points I remember about how I'm going to know in this kind of faith, you don't enter into battle. You stay in the shrine room of your heart. No, it's not done. Not done. Because you believe in yourself. Because you know that you are that divinity. You know that God works by you knowing who you are. You know, Vivekananda in his practical Vedanta lecture three, I think it is. He says in there, he says, more and more, I do not believe in an external God for everything in my life has come from within. This is a man who's seen Kali dancing in the shrine. This is a man who's seen the world, the walls of a room whirl away at the touch of his guru, saying that more and more as his life has gone on, he's not looking for a God out there. God has always moved him from the inside. So he's gone inside, he's going inside. So when you go into that, that shrine room in your space, you know, you, you unflinchingly are sitting there doing your devotions, and the, the things are attacking the senses, you know, the moat, the moat is being surrounded on the outside, you know, whatever it is, those desires are lining up, those temptations, those objects of flickering beauty are flashing and asking for your attention, you know, and, and Something, you know, akin to a mom comes in and says, oh, come on, what do you, get out there. <laughs> You're like, no need, I made that decision already. I made that decision already. That's not who I am. I'm not selfish. I'm not afraid. I'm not lustful. <laughs> I'm not needy. I have everything within. You know, I have everything within. And you do it for the sake of love. That's our highest ideal. It's just because of love. There's no other reason. 
You know, the king wasn't sitting there in his shrine room thinking, okay, I'm going to sit here in the shrine room because then I'll win the battle. He didn't even know the battle was going on. He goes outside and he's like bewildered, like, well, what's going on out here? You know, why is my horse sweaty? So we do it without motive. You know, you don't do your spiritual life because you're going to get that crown of gold someday. (laughs) You don't do your spiritual life because, you know, it'll make me an awesome person or because, you know, people will love me. Lots of people will really love me. You know, my funeral will be a real party if I'm a good person. (laughs) It's not that idea. It's because we're just love. It's who we are. It's what we are. It's our highest ideal. It's everything about us. It's our strength. It's our inspiration. It's our source. It's our happiness. It's our companion. It's our, our everything. I mean, you can put it anywhere. And that's why we are what we are. You know, again, I, I need to broaden my, my pot of examples. They're going <laughs> to get old. But these are the ones that inspire me, and I think about them all the time. That story of that sadhu, that crazy sadhu that was sitting on the side of the river, and that, that scorpion falls off the leaf into the water. You know, <laughs> and he reaches down, and he picks it up, and he pulls it out, and puts it on the ground. The scorpion stings him, and somebody's watching him do this. And he does it three times. And the scorpion stings him three times. You know, the first time that scorpion would have been smushed on the bank if it was me. You know, be like, oh yeah, (laughs) that's done. You know, this guy does it. And so the bystander comes and says to him, why are you doing this? Why, why are you doing this? Why haven't you? And the sadhu just says, it's my nature. He says, yeah, but the the scorpion is stinging you. He says, yes, that's the scorpion's nature. But my nature is to love, to help, and so I help. It's his nature to sting, and so he stings. You know? <laughs> Isn't that cool? Isn't that a beautiful ideal? It's not shopkeeping. That's what Swamiji talks about with love. You know, It's not a matter of record-keeping. Like, okay, now I've called my friend four times this week, and they have not called me back, and this is the third time this has happened. I'm moving on, and then your phone rings, you see their name, you're like, uh-uh not answered you know <laughs> because that's shopkeeping you've you've taken your eyes off of the ideal you've forgotten who you were it's your nature to love it's your nature to love you don't need anything back for that you don't need to be paid for who you are you don't need to be reimbursed you know because you you've got an infinite source what's there in reimbursement with an infinite source you know You don't have to count how many times that person has offended you and then draw the line in the sand, it's over. You don't have to do that. It's not necessary. You certainly can. You're welcome to. If it feels good to you, does it? It it never does, does it? You always just wish it was resolved and over with, right? You wished you didn't have to apologize or that they didn't have to apologize or that they would just stop being horrible. You know, but you're never happy in the midst of shopkeeping. It's it's never satisfying. You always feel gross somehow, somewhere along the way. So it's not necessary. As the scriptures are saying to you, it's not necessary for you to be like that. You don't have to. You are you are the front door to an infinite supply of love. To an infinite supply of love. You don't need to be reimbursed. You don't need to be getting the money back. You don't need to have a tax rate on how much you care about people. You can just keep loving, you know. You can talk to that person on the street that may be really rude to you in return. <laughs> you know, I've said hi to a lot of people on the Matthew Henson Trail who didn't say hi back. <laughs> but you just keep going, you know, because it's your nature. 
it's who you were. It's, it's, it's what you were born to express. It's what you were born to be. You know, that realization, that understanding, that is your inner strength. And don't enter into a discussion in your mind when it's challenged. Don't even accept the battle. Don't even fight about it. Just sit in the chair. It will hold you up. It is the best way. You will be happier <laughs> if you don't fall into your vice yet again. <laughs> you will be happier. So how do we go about doing this? I'm going to go to Camp Taylor, May 1900. This is in California. I was lucky enough for 15 years to drive by this place at least twice a week. May 1900, Mrs. Hansborough is sitting there. They're camping with Swamiji, okay? <laughs> you, want to be, you want to be jealous. You're allowed to be jealous of Mrs. Hansborough here who's camping for like 18 days with Swamiji, meditating with him every day. Swamiji built a fire on a spit of sand and ran out into the stream, and we all sat around it, or that ran out into the stream, and we all sat around it in the quiet night, and Swamiji sang for us and told stories. <laughs> you have to pause and think about that. Imagine sitting around a campfire with Swamiji, Swami Vivekananda singing to you, telling you stories. Oh, wow. Yes, so, and such as those about Sukadeva and Vyasa, which he should have told me about those stories because I don't know them. Ida Ansel says, I close my eyes and I see him standing there in the soft blackness with sparks from the blazing log fire flying through it and a day-old moon above. We had a glorious meditation around the campfire. He said to us, you may meditate on whatever you wish, but I shall meditate on the heart of a lion that gives strength. It was a never-to-be-forgotten night. The profound stillness of the forest, the beauty of the fire, and most of all, Swamiji, serene, majestic, evidently happy to be there, free from lectures and crowds, Though he was tired and needed a rest, how unutterably grand he was. We end life in the forest as we begin it, he declared, but what a world of experience lies between the two states. I can still feel that great peace and power of our meditation that night whenever I think of it. Whenever I think of it. That whole beautiful experience there, your meditation is your inner strength. Your meditation is your feeling of love. Your time basking in the divinity of, of your chosen ideal is your source of touching this infinite storehouse of love that you might be who you are, that you might realize your nature, that you might be fearless, free, and open. Meditate on the heart of a lion, Meditate on the line of Vedanta. Sit and read the words of Ida Ansel and put yourself on that spit of sand. Sitting with God, your God, the most intimate experience you ever will have is with your God, your divinity. And your time with that divinity, bask in it. Look at how Ida and Mrs. Hensborough were basking in that, the way they described that time. You know, we had a glorious meditation soft blackness of the night with sparks from the blazing log fire you know and most of all swamiji serene 
majestic, happy, free. Though he was tired and needed a rest, how unutterably grand he was. Why was he unutterably grand? Because he knew his nature. Even when he needed rest, even when he was you know, completely worn out from his schedule, he was, to Mrs. Hansborough and Ida Ansel, a storehouse of love. We shall crush the stars to atoms. We will unhinge this universe. Don't you know who we are? We are the servants of Sri Ramakrishna. It is those foolish people who identify themselves with their bodies that piteously cry, we are weak, we are low. All this is atheism. Now that we have attained the state beyond fear, we shall have no more fear and become heroes. This indeed is theism, which we, the servants of Sri Ramakrishna, will choose. Give up the attachment for this world and drink constantly the supreme nectar of immortality, forever discarding that self-seeking spirit which is the mother of all dissension and ever meditating on the blessed feet of our guru, which are the embodiment of well-being. With repeated salutations, we invite the whole world to participate in drinking this nectar. Don't identify yourself with the limited, with this small thing, your body, this fearful mind, this limited manifestation. Know your real nature. Give up attachment to the world. This is for your inner strength. This is where you're going to find it. Give up your attachment for the world. Give up those things you think you need, those things that you think provide you with your happiness, those things that you think provide you with your peace, those things that you think inspire you that are objects, that are out there. Bring them all home and know that everything that you saw in them, you were only capable of seeing because it was in you, because it is in you. Bring them all home. Let go of the world. Drink constantly that supreme nectar of immortality, that infinite, unending, fearless existence. Drink of it constantly get drunk on that idea forever discard that self-seeking spirit that comes from being limited if you think this is all you are you've got to feed it <laughs> you've got to give it clothing you've got to find a place for it it's always hungry it's never satisfied you know, your desires are never satisfied <laughs> there's a brief there's like a brief moment where you're sated and then it's oof, on to the next thing and the next thing will be like three times more involved. You can know that. I used to marvel, you know, when I was when I was young, it was the big deal to be a millionaire, you know, and now we've got like billionaires. And like not just billionaires, but like the richest men in the world, we're talking like 140 billion dollars, 170 billion dollars. And they're still going to work. <laughs> they're still reading the stocks and bonds on Wall Street. What? <laughs> what if if money was what was going to satisfy you at 170 billion you'd think you'd be satisfied you'd think you could just kind of kick back and be like you know I pretty much don't care about wall street today <laughs> I pretty much don't care about the office but that's it's not like that it's not like that you'll have 170 billion and you'll want 171 billion because the fluctuation in the market you know there was a time where bill gates and uh, Larry Ellison, 
where they were they kept going back and forth for being the richest man in the world, you know, depending on how their stocks were doing. Like these guys can lose like forty billion in a day just because the stocks go down a point or two. It's crazy. So anyway, they were going back and forth. And I was watching that, I was like, you know what? You know they're watching that. You know they're concerned about that. Because that's what that's what takes somebody to that level is watching and being concerned about something like that. You know, oh man got to really do it and I get back up there again I gotta be number one again <laughs> because that's how the world is man your your desires will chase you like hounds you know the scriptures say that they'll just chase you down like hounds you will never find satisfaction in them there's not a blanket big enough in this world to keep you warm you know until you turn within and find that divinity inside That nectar which has been obtained by churning the infinite ocean of the Vedas into which Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, and the other gods have poured their strength, which is charged with the life essence of the avatars, gods incarnate on earth, Sri Ramakrishna holds that nectar in his person in the fullest measure. Your chosen ideal has it. Has it. And he lives here. He manifests here. And to the degree which you are able to let go of the world, to the degree that you are able to, to, to discard the nagging mind, to the point that you can actually sit in the chair in that level of confidence, it will hold me. Where you can assume love. You will be love. And you will manifest like Takwar manifested, like Holy Mother manifests ever more and more. That nectar which has been churned in the infinite ocean of the Vedas into which the gods have poured their strength, which is charged with the life essence of all of the avatars, all of them, gods incarnate on earth, all the Jesuses, all the Buddhas, all the Chaitanyas, all the Ramakrishnas, they hold in their person that nectar, imbibe that. Swamiji says, he's described once in Kashmir, after an attack of illness, I had seen him lift a couple of, this person talking about Swamiji, I saw him lift two pebbles, two stones, and was rolling them in his hand. And Swamiji said, whenever death approaches me, all weakness vanishes. I have neither fear, nor doubt, nor thought of the external. I am simply busy myself, making ready to die. I am as hard as that. And he struck the stones together in his hand, looked at me and said, for I have touched the feet of God. That's the ultimate strength. (laughs) That's the ultimate promise. That's why we're here this morning, (laughs) during another boring lecture. That's why we're here together, practicing love, trying to keep our eyes on the goal, so that we can have that, that we can one day say, I have touched the feet of God. I have touched the feet of God. Hafiz says, like the morning breeze, if you bring to the morning good deeds, the rose of our desire will open and bloom. Because he understands, your only desire is for the divine. That is the rose of your desire. All the other desires that, that you've linked, all the other things that you've linked that desire to are, are, are accidents, mistakes. <laughs> you've, been, you've been fooled by the mirror. You know? 
You've been fooled by the mirror. So realize that it's just a mirror, that divinity is here. And the rose of that desire, the rose of that desire will open and bloom. Go forward and make advances down this road of love. In forward motion, the pain is great. To beg at the door of the wine house is a wonderful alchemy. If you practice this, soon you will be converting dust into gold. O heart, if only once you experience the light of purity, like a laughing candle you can abandon the life you live in your head. Hafiz, if you are listening to this good advice, the road of love and its enrichment are right around the curve. These are the promises. These are inner strength. To know yourself, it's the same lecture over and over and over again. You know, love is the point of every, every scripture. It's the point of every moment you spend in meditation, it's the point of every song that we sing, every song on the radio. <laughs> Why? Not just the ones we... I mean, this is so much bigger than a temple. This is so much bigger than a religion. This is, this is love universal. This is love absolute. It is what every single person out there is trying to express perfectly in a day. It's the point that gets everybody out of bed. Now, everybody has... Like I said, everybody... The scriptures say it. We've... we've attached it to a lot of things. A lot of people think I'm going to work to make my money. I'm going to work to support my family that I love. I'm, I'm going, you know, on a, I'm, I'm getting up for the date I'm going on tonight because I love this new person so much. Or, you know, I'm going because I can't wait to go to this party. Those are, the, those are the apparent reasons that we get up in the morning. Those are the apparent reasons that people out in the world get up. But this world is a temple. And the truth of the matter is everybody here gets up for the same ideal, for that ideal of love. Divine love, absolute, full, pouring out, unlimited. That is the ideal. The temple for that is life itself, bigger than any bound of any religion, practiced by every person of every creed. As many paths as as many people, Swamiji said. That's the challenge. Find your inner strength there. Know that it exists already. It's just a matter of seeing it. Swamiji said, another one of those things I go back to all the time, don't seek God, don't look for him, see him. Everything you're looking at is a manifestation of that.